Sometimes as a preacher, you preach things that you don't practice because it's still right to preach them even if you suck at them. And there are other things you preach that you practice. And those things tend to be a little easier to preach, at least with any sort of conviction. I feel like the last few years, I thought I had practiced apocalyptic living while preaching about the apocalypse. But the truth is, I've learned a lot over the past couple of years because of some revelations that um, were either in my blind spot or I was in denial over. Those things always come back to the forefront. If there's a wall that's meant to come down or a curtain that's meant to fall, it's going to happen. In today's episode, I process quite extemporaneously some of my thoughts about grief and apocalypse and um, just some of what I'm feeling this week given what's going on in the world and going on in the world and and what's going on in my my own personal life. I hope you'll find something in here that... um, That is helpful. And I hope that we all can find in this uh, time and and in this message uh, some way to to be at peace with one another and to find love for one another. A few years ago, I stood in the pulpit of my church and I said something to the effect of we were entering apocalyptic times if not already in them and not that all times aren't somewhat apocalyptic because they are um, but it just felt like very specifically we were entering a time that that was going to be quite revealing I also at that time predicted that at some point in the generation of my children, there would be a radical return to simplicity. That is yet to be seen. I I think we are on course for that, though. The claim, though, that we had entered into the apocalypse at first, um, I felt like I was selling moon rocks to people when I said that they would just kind of look at me like what and throughout my time pastoring in my last church I couldn't help but get away from the themes of apocalypse they they seemed to pop up um, everywhere so much so that there was kind of a running joke among some in the congregation that that was like my favorite word and um, some of them may have actually counted how many times I used the word on a weekly basis, but, and then when the pandemic happened, I felt like a a lot of other things fell apart at the same time. Some, some connected with COVID and other things not. And I think that we've, I think we've experienced that as a, as a, as a culture, both communally and individually. 
I suppose all times are hard and as someone who enjoys history I I realize that really there's there's not much new under the sun. But I currently feel like just our our very felt experience needs to acknowledge <clears throat> that despite how these times might compare to other apocalyptic times these are definitely significantly revelatory times. And times like this are hard. Apocalyptic times are times when the veil is rent and we see what's behind the curtain. Sometimes what is behind the curtain is, well, always is liberating, but is often hard to see. And because of that, apocalypse is often accompanied with with an overcoming excuse me, an overwhelming sense of grief. <clears throat> you know, apocalyptic times on a very personal level, it's, it's those times when what we thought could never happen, happens. It's the time when we see things for what they really are, what they really were. We see what people really were. We see what relationships actually were. We see institutionally how things are. We also learn some really challenging personal truths. We learn, we learn who has our back and who doesn't. We learn how to have our own back. We learn a lot about ourselves but it's a painful painful process full of grace and intentionality I think I think that apocalyptic times are necessary um, whether you buy into the theory that we have them every 500 years or so or whether you buy into the Girardian idea that we um, that we have them every time the culture kind of gets worked up into a frenzy of competition and envy um, whether you believe it's because of the Mer- Mercury retrograde or God's divine plan uh, apocalyptic times do seem to be necessary for personal growth and also for the growth of of the human species and and of our communities. The thing is, I think we just have to be honest about the traumatic impact that apocalyptic times have on us. They're traumatic, these moments are, these moments of revelation, these moments of seeing the great Oz is not so great, the moments of questioning God's or the universe's or our own personal destiny and meaning for our lives. It comes 
with a great deal of grief. And grief is a complicated experience. You know, people say, well, there's stages to grief. The funny thing about the stages to grief is, you know, they just kind of shuffle around over time. (laughs) You never stop really experiencing any of them. Certainly long after the trauma and the tragedy of apocalypse, uh, maybe we're able to hold that pain and those the pain of those stages in perspective. But it doesn't mean we won't still have them sometimes. <clears throat> and the thing about grief is, to really make it through it, it, it helps to have people around you who can be just present with you. And who maybe don't have the answers, but can be non-anxious. And be the best version of themselves while you're at the most discombobulated version of yours, yourself. But in apocalyptic times, that's, it's hard to do because we're all going through it together. And even though we have our own individual experiences that are contributing to our grief, the truth is we're still all going through it together. And... We're all at different stages at different times. And we're all at different levels of our own mental and spiritual health at times. And that's been one of the hardest things, I think, for me in my unraveling and my leaving the church is is feeling as though I'm experiencing all this grief alone. And in some ways, I do have to experience it alone. In some ways, I have to descend into the chaos, descend into the unknown, surrender to it, and and see what kind of resurrection might emerge from the situation. So on the one hand, you do, I think, have to experience this kind of grief on a very personal and individual level. On the other hand, it is so challenging to really sort through the pieces of yourself without, without others there to, to process or at least understand the pain with you. And I'm not saying I have an answer to this because I don't. On the one hand, given the opportunity to be part of a community of people who were also unraveling at the time, I don't know that I would have taken it. I feel like in some ways the apocalypse and me really seeing the church for what it was and seeing myself for who I am and and really beginning to wrestle with all of that, all that stuff, you know, I, I, I had to go at it alone. It was super important that I did that. And I know a lot of people don't understand that. It frustrates a lot of people, you know, because I guess the thought process, had I stayed in a tribe or stayed in a community, you know, maybe I would have just never left the church, which by the way, I don't know that I've left the church. I'm just currently not engaged. 
uh, and I have left for now. Um, and maybe church is being, maybe whatever church is, the idea of church is being shaken up enough right now that, that we're going to land somewhere that, um, that me and people like me might, might be able to call themselves part of the church again. I don't know. So even though I don't think that uh, there's necessarily an answer to this or even that or even that we should expect to somehow figure out a way to be there for one another as we grieve communally. But I think we need to acknowledge it. Not for the sake of fixing it, but for the sake of being patient and kind to one another. And recognizing that none of us are, are really healthy. Mentally. And some of you may take offense to that last statement. I'm sure many of you are much healthy, much more healthier than others. You know, if you would have asked me last year where my mental health was at, I feel like my mental health was a lot better this time of year than it is this time this year. Um, but so many things have happened as a, as a, as a country, in the world, in the church. I mean, the past few years have been just, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, have been an apocalypse not going to beat around the bush about it. Things have shifted more than we realize that they've shifted. I don't think we truly understand the ramifications of the shifts that have taken place in the last seven to ten years. Uh, and rapidly over the past five to seven years. Nothing new under the sun, but again, it's very specific to our experience as a people, as humans. And this is not just in regards to people of faith who are dealing with the unraveling from the apocalypse we're having in the church, but just all over the place, families, institutions, traditions, relationships, everything is being shaken and deconstructed to some degree or another. And there is a grief in that process. And we are all experiencing it and we are all not well. And I think that is something we need to, we need to go ahead and, and just be honest about. And, and to just be patient with one another as we go through the stages of bargaining and denying and being depressed and of being lost and of experiencing some corporate disassociation. We got to find a way to stop being at each other. You know, it's like, it's just like in a marriage or in a relationship, you know, you have to recognize the signs when you're not able just to be at peace and not be at one another, but to find common ground and to live together and to, and to pursue love and unity above all, above all else when everything else is scary and weird and shaky. You have to do that on a personal level. We've got to do that on a corporate level. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I know that it looks like returning to some virtues around patience and some virtues around 
trusting and honoring one another instead of holding everyone in suspicion. Doing what it takes to act in goodwill towards one another to establish those bonds of trust and patience again. Because it's hard out here, y'all. It's hard. And it's, it's, it's hard enough to go through grief It's even harder to go through grief alone. It's even more of a challenge when so many are grieving so many different things and so many of the same things all at once. So we got to find new ways to be there for one another. Rather than trying to fix one another or convince one another that we're right and they're wrong, rather than bringing our emotions into every single dialogue and conversation, maybe it's time that we be quick to listen and slow to speak. Maybe we should remember God gave us two ears and just one mouth. This week, we, I think, this kind of came to a head for me after the shoot, school shooting in Texas because in my own personal life, there's been a lot of things I've been, been grieving. And then the shooting happened, and it, it was weird because it put some things in perspective in my life. I'm like, you know, I'm, the things I'm worried about are so significant to me. The things I'm carrying are are heavy, some of the heaviest stuff I've carried in my life. But I didn't lose my kid this week to a senseless shooting. And as much as I've got to figure out in my life, I'm not in a town where 19 families at least lives have been altered in tragic and significant ways. And I saw everybody kind of go at each other on the internet and can't we just grieve? We need gun control. How long are we going to live in denial? (laughs) We don't have a gun problem. We've got a sin problem. Thoughts and prayers. Screw your thoughts and prayers. Just realizing that everybody's in a different page in their stage of grief. But maybe we're all experiencing the same feeling. I think that's true. I've seen that in my ministry and I've seen that in relationships. A lot of times when things reach, reach ahead, it's because you're both feeling the same things. You've just been in different stages of the grief process over the thing you're both feeling. Or that you're all feeling. So while one's bargaining, the other one is trying to accept. And while one's in denial, the other one is in depression. We need some perspective. We need some love. 
We need some patience with one another. Somebody asked me this week if I missed my former self. I thought, wow, that's a really profound question. (laughs) And I had to think about that for a moment. And I had to walk back through some of my experiences over the last two years, especially. Because the last two years have been a a time of pretty radical change for me. I I would say really, if I'm honest with myself, the past seven to 10 years have been a time of rapid change for me, but I really didn't, I really didn't feel as though the changes were as significant in my life before as they were in the last couple of years. But honestly, if I'm, if I'm being honest, it's because there's also kind of this compound effect, you know, So things kind of come to a head over the last couple of years. And I am a pretty different person than I used to be, but in a lot of ways, I'm still the same person. And and in fact, in in ways that are very important to me, I'm, I'm more myself now than I was somewhere in the middle of my life thus far. And so I had to think about that. Do I miss myself? And I remember... When I, when I left ministry and I decided I needed to really take a hard break and make a hard break and, and take some time, that for a while it was, and still is, it was really hard to find my footing in the world because, you know, I used to be Pastor Daniel. Now I'm just Daniel. <laughs> and... What's worse is because I'm a real estate agent, I, I actually found my name was circulating on some um, some Facebook groups from my old denomination in which leaders were lamenting how I used to be a pastor and now I'm a lowly realtor. Uh, and that was hard to read because, you know, if I'm honest with myself, it has been a struggle an existential struggle for me as I have as I have largely left an identity uh, that was a very very big part of my life and a very big part of a lot of other people's lives as well something that I can't forget <clears throat> so do I miss my old self you know there was a time period when I did it's kind of like when the hebrew children left egypt and they got into the wilderness it's hard to take on an identity of being free when you were a slave for so long. And so there's this grief that comes with that, right? And that's why that's why the Hebrews said, you brought us out in the, into the wilderness to die, they tell Moses, take us back. There's something about the comfort of, of going back. But it's more than that. It's also, it's also a way to kind of deal with the grief that comes with your whole life being changed, even if it's for the better and you don't realize it yet. <clears throat> and so there was a time where I, I felt like there was a part of me dying and I did grieve that part of me dying and still do. It was a very different kind of grief though. I, 
you know, looking back now, I would probably need to go back through that with someone like a therapist or a friend and really process that because looking back, I, I think I felt my way through that more than I thought my way through that. And so I don't have a lot of thoughts about what that experience was like, but I do know that I experienced it. And so I told this person, I said, yeah, you know, it's, there is a grief that comes um, from growth. And there is a grief that comes from, from being pushed into the, into the abyss, into the chaos. And I think that's all perfectly normal. And I don't think it needs to be fixed. I don't think it needs to be fixed. Grief in the process. Grief in the process. Grief in the process. I think that's such an important thing to consider is that as much as we want to avoid the grief, the grief is part of the process. Jesus grieved. Twice we see him grieving as he's ready to go to the cross, face his greatest fears, torture and pain, suffering by choice, by choice, choosing that route. He goes to the Mount of Olives and he weeps over Jerusalem. And then he goes to a garden on the outskirts of Jerusalem, Gethsemane. Actually, not really the outskirts, but on the edge of the inner city of Jerusalem called Gethsemane. And he cries and he weeps there and he's, he's grieved. It's all part of the process, though. It's all part of the process. And in my personal life, currently, I have some battles with grief that I have to fight alone. Um, having said that, that doesn't mean I haven't connected with and felt the support and love from many friends who know some of the, some of the chaos in my life right now. And if it weren't for them, it would have been a lot harder to deal with. But they can't deal with it the way that I have to deal with it because it's my apocalypse. It's, it's my chaos. <laughs> it's my unraveling, if you will. The strange thing about moments like this is by the very nature of the process, you're isolated because no one is experiencing it the way that you are. No one can really relate to it the way that you relate to it when you go through personal crises or personal apocalyptic times. And I've heard people say before that they 
you know, been in a room full of people and still felt alone. And I guess to some degree I've experienced that, but even more so lately, even more so lately. That's because these apocalyptic times have shaken and stirred. I'm one of those individuals who, who feel like I really don't have a tribe anymore. I'm learning I'm not the only one. In fact, just today, someone in a Facebook interaction or a, another social media page interaction made comment that they just have no tribe. And that's been hard, if I'm honest with you. It's been harder on my family than I anticipated. Not that they're begging for a church or a tribe, but just seeing how being untethered from that... Um, it's a difficult thing. I'm not saying it was not an, an an unnecessary thing, but it's a difficult thing. And if there are so many of us out there right now who feel so untethered from any tribe, and if you're like me, you're kind of gun shy about joining another tribe <laughs> or tying your identity to a group right now. I wonder if it's not time for us to start exploring what that might look like Uh, rather than just avoiding it for fear of of experiencing the same things that we experienced in the tribalism that we have now lost. Tribalism is a weird thing. It it uh, It's not always a great thing, but it's also not always a bad thing. I feel like the Donald Trump presidency, at least in our generation, and certainly not throughout history, but in our generation was was one of the one of the greatest tests to our democratic process. I loved in some ways I loved how much went on because because it was like a civics course for my kids. If I was a high school civics teacher, I would, during his presidency, I would have just cut the TV on every day, probably, and just, you know, there was so many things going on. It was a, just a wild time, politically. Um, and I feel like the apocalypse that we're experiencing collectively right now, in the same way that we saw that as sort of a test of the of the political system and was an apocalypse in its own right. Western individualism, as well as being the ideals of it are being tested as well as, you know, our, our human ideas of, of, uh, of community and communism. And I'm not using that, that in the political ideology sense, but in the sense of how do we live together, not just as individuals. And I think that's being tested, and that's good. It's not a bad thing. I think we need that because I think we swing back and forth between the two extremes of individualism and you know social life and social dynamics and social realities. And so maybe we're experiencing that too in the church a bit. The effects of rugged Western individualism 
on a faith that in the Judeo-Christian tradition is, is kind of a, a slave tradition and a, and a tradition of the exiles and a tradition of the oppressed, which is always much more communal-based than individual-based. And on that idea of individualization, I, I think, too, it's important to note that many of us, like myself, I'm 40 years old, many of us who find ourselves kind of on the other side of some form of or in the throes of some sort of deconstruction or unraveling is that we're also going through midlife crises. You know, and I joke, man, I I had the convertible and everything, y'all. Like, I've been in it for a while. Um and that's a reality we have to face and and it's a normal thing you know from from Kabbalah to Carl Jung you know both um Carl Jung and the teachings of Kabbalah are that when a person <clears throat> becomes 35 40 years old there's a reckoning that happens and and this this reckoning is is realizing that you've You've done all the things you're supposed to do, and there's still something greater to be done. Um, Kabbalah says that is when the spiritual pursuit begins because you've you've learned things, you've experienced things, you've created things, and there's still a hole in your heart to some degree. It sounds very evangelical in nature, a God-shaped hole, but there's some truth to that, and Jung would say that that's the process of individuation. It's the process of a person becoming their own person. And it's super important. The challenge we have is we are living in a culture um, that has basically untethered itself from, from all, the, all the communities and, and institutions that, that once tethered our belief systems. And you're not going to like this, some of you, but, it, but it's just a reality we have to be honest about. You know, when you take away the church and, and the traditional family or the, the way the family has always been thought of in a traditional, a more traditional sense, the nuclear family especially, um, when you take away the constructs of, of a society and uh, you can fill in the blanks for whatever those constructs are, <clears throat> but when you do that and you begin to untether, everyone kind of has to fend for themselves at this point, which was Nitsky's fear not fear, but what he saw in the future, which is why he said God is dead, because no one will tether themselves to any sort of any sort of organized belief about God, and then, and as a result, we'll just have to all become God ourselves. But that's unnecessary chaos, in my opinion. There's necessary. There's a necessary diving into the chaos. And then there is the unnecessary stirring of the chaos. And I'll give you two examples of this in the biblical narrative. <clears throat> One of them is kind of a, a good metaphor, but in Job, Job sees the Leviathan, or God talks to Job about the Leviathan, I should say. And the Leviathan is, uh, is a mythological Jewish creature. It's, it's, uh, it's the chaos, the creature of chaos, Leviathan. It's this beast that lives in the deep depths of the sea or... Um, lives in the great storms of the sea. And when God confronts Job at the end of Job, God asks Job, would you try to lay your hook in Leviathan? Would you try to reel it in? 
You know, would you try to capture it? Would you rub your hands down its scales? And the answer is no, you would never do that. It's a horrible idea because the more you try to reel in, hook, hook your hook in the jaw of the monster and reel it in, the more the monster will pull you in. And, and the idea of descending into chaos is not so that we may die in chaos, but, but so, that we can get, so that we can get to the place in chaos where the spirit is brooding. Because when the spirit broods over chaos, creation comes forth. This is the Genesis mythology narrative. <clears throat> so, that's one example of Of not, of not succumbing to the chaos. Another example for me is when Satan tests Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus, you know, is the, the one in particular where he's on the, the, the temple mount or the, the top of the temple and Satan says, cast yourself down and, and Jesus responds, you shouldn't tempt the Lord your God. Well, in the same way you shouldn't try to lay your hook into the jaw of Leviathan, there's something to be said about not testing your gods. Um, you know, if you're a person who has anxiety, you'll do this a lot. You know, it's 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 um, it's a positive feedback loop in in psychology. But in essence, what you're doing is you have anxiety about something, you worry about something, and then you check your feelings. Well, maybe I shouldn't be scared about this. Let me see how scared I am of it. And then, as soon as you feel scared about it again, it reinforces that this is something that you should be scared of. And so you become anxious about all kinds of things that may be completely irrational, but it's because you're constantly poking the bear. You're constantly tempting the chaos. And I said all that to say this. I feel like if we are in a place where community we are, at least in the people who listen to um, this podcast or are interested in the things that my generation is going through, that if we are going through some sort of corporate individuation as well as personal individuation, corporate grief as well as personal grief, corporate apocalypse as well as personal apocalypse, all these things are happening at the same time and they're connected even though we don't, we, we will not be able to see all the ways that they're connected right now, but they're all connected. It's all, all connected. We're all in the same river <laughs> um, flowing and, uh, you know, if if that is the case, I think there's something to be said about not tempting the tiger, not um, not testing the chaos, not tempting our gods. And again, that comes back to maybe it's time to practice some patience and some love. And that's really all I have to say on the matter. It's been on my heart for a minute to say and with all the events that have happened this week in Texas and in a lot of families and lives and in the world, I felt like maybe I'd share some of my thoughts on it. So be patient, be loving to others and to yourself. <laughs>